0: David is in this difficult, hard place. Ten years running from Saul. He ran to Ramah. He hobnobbed at Nob. And now, David and his band of outcasts and misfits, which is up to 600 men, move into the wilderness of Judah. And while he's in the wilderness of Judah, David hears of a Philistine attack against Judah. Now, mind you, he's on the run from Saul, king of all Israel, Israel. And while he's running, he hears that the Philistines are attacking his people. And that's where we began the chapter tonight, as the warrior heart of David begins to emerge. Chapter 23, verse 1. They told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. Now see this is why again David is a man after God's own heart He is showing the heart of a king A selfless heart Where he is more concerned about his people Than he is about himself If it was all about David He would not go and attack these Philistines And engage in battle Giving Saul opportunity to hear where he is And come after him he would be running for his life, but he's concerned about his people's life. Specifically, these people in Keilah are are people of the tribe of Judah, his own tribe. And so David's concerned about them, and he turns and he inquires of the Lord. You will see David doing that over and over and over. He inquires of the Lord. In fact, there are several things that David does throughout this chapter, and the first one is he devotes himself to prayer. He hears about this attack, and he doesn't run in the opposite direction, nor does he engage the Philistines. He first stops, and it says, David inquired of the Lord. It's a great line to underline in your Bible, and you'll see it over and over. David inquired of the Lord. And I love this about David. Father, my fellow countrymen are under attack, but (laughs) I'm under attack too. So should I go and help them? Can I have your permission to go and fight with the Philistines? Is this okay to do? And the Lord tells him, in essence, you go, David. You go take them. You go fight. So, verse 3, there's one problem. David's men said to him, behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more, then, if we go to Keilah uh, against the ranks of the Philistines? So, verse 4 says, David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David devotes himself to prayer, but it's interesting, David also discerns with patience. First he inquires of the father, but then obviously the next thing he does is he inquires of his men. He gathers them around, he says, okay, we've heard the Philistines are attacking, I've told the Lord about it, asked him about it, and he says, we're good to go. But his men begin to shake in their boots, His men don't respond well. But I still believe that in this there is a key factor to us living as Christians in the way that we relate to other believers. And that's going to other Christians and testing things out. Questioning them. Seeking wise counsel from people that you trust and that you know well. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. Our staff meetings are just that. Same with our, our elders' meetings, our staff meetings. We just had one this morning, our our whole staff together, and I've been in many different staff situations in churches over the years. This one is by far the most fun. Michelle, you know what I'm talking about. Because we, we get in there and we, we accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished, but it's it's pretty wild. And there's a lot of input flying around and there are times I look over at Les and bless his heart he's just sitting there praying in the spirit as fast as he can <laughs> just to keep up with everybody else you know because they're just going out you know. and, and, but that for me for me it works because I'm hearing from everybody and I like that I like the input I, I crave the input I want to know, what. okay, well, what do you guys think about this? What do you think about that? And there are times when, when our when our church staff have turned to me and said, Rick, well, just make the decision all right. In fact, I believe you did today, didn't you, Michelle? Just make a decision. Okay, all right, I'll make it. But I love the input. And I think there's great value in this. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Our elders meetings are like that. There's a lot of conversation that's going on. And within the body, as we consult with each other, a mark of a wise follower of the Lord is someone who tests what they believe the Lord is telling them with other followers of the Lord. However, once we've sought that counsel, it is always even more wise to go back to the Lord. Lord, I've talked to you about it. I think I know what you're telling me. I've taken it to this group of people. We've talked about it. And now I'm coming back to you. To make sure, again, that what I'm hearing, especially if what I'm hearing from them is different than what I thought I heard from you. And David goes to the Lord and he says, help me out here, should I go fight? And the Lord says, yes, that's what David is pretty sure he's hearing. So he goes to his men and says, the Lord says fight, and his men go, "Dave, that's, that's a dangerous proposition. Maybe that's not the best move. I and mean, we're already afraid right now, and it's going to be much worse than this. So David goes, okay, thanks, got your input. And he goes back to the Father. And the second time he goes back to the Lord, the Lord tells him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. He doesn't just say go and fight. He doesn't just say go attack them and deliver Keilah. He says, I, I will deliver them. If you want to be sure, let me tell you, Dave, I will go before you. This is the difference between human and Godly wisdom. Human or carnal wisdom, and godly or spiritual wisdom. It's what Paul said to the very carnal church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, he said, Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, As it is written, things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, and the Spirit searches all things, even to the depths of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And then Paul says, and this is wonderful, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Indeed, Paul says at the end of the chapter, we have the mind of Christ and what we see here is there's human wisdom and there's godly wisdom there's carnal wisdom where you can sit down and you can work it out and you can take pen to paper and try and make things work out logically analytically that's human wisdom but there's godly wisdom which is spiritual which is far greater and so a great method for discovering and knowing the will of God in your life is go to the Father first inquire of the Lord as David does then And it about with two or three or four Christians that that you trust, that you know believe the Lord, that you know are praying as well. Talk about it. If it's exactly, if it's confirming what you've already heard, great. If it's not confirming, if it's different than what you think you're hearing, then go back to the Lord again. And this circular pattern, start with the Lord, go to brothers and sisters in Christ for confirmation, and then go back to the Lord is a very healthy approach, I believe, to following the leading of the Lord. Well, David inquired of the Lord. He listened to his men. He inquires of the Lord again to be sure of God's leading. And verse 5 says, So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. This great king. Not king yet, but he's acting like a king because the people mean more to David than his own life. So you would think, you would think the people of Teila would be thrilled. You'd think they would be lauding David's name. You'd think there would be great applause and cheering, right? That that in the streets there would be parades with a big David statue or something. That they would be just saying, Great, David, just saved us, thank you. Then they'd be singing the old song off the hit parade in Israel, David has killed his ten thousands and Saul has killed his thousands. That's what you would expect. And yet, and yet, it's not even close to what happens. Before we get into this next section there is an insanity in humanity there is something that goes on an ironic inevitability among those who take part in this thing we call the human race and it's just this and forgive me for being negative for just a moment here but it seems that the people you fight for the people that you give the most to the people that you stick your neck out for become the very ones who betray you and turn against you Rick, that's sounding awfully paranoid. The people for whom you stick your neck out and really go the distance, you're like, man, you're doing everything you can to help out, are often those who would just as soon chop off your head later on. The very thing they hire you for, they fire you for. Maybe you've heard that phrase. What is it about human nature that leads us into this place of betrayal? And again, I don't, I don't want to lay a big bummer on you here tonight, but I do want us to think soberly about this issue of betrayal, for David is now going to face this. Verse 6, it came about when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah that he came down with an ephod in his hand. The ephod is that, um, that vest that the high priest would wear. And they would use the vest, you may recall. The vest was connected to what's called the Urim and the, and the Thummim. Not the Ummah and the Thurman, the Urim and the Thummim. And they would use that, and possibly the stones, the twelve stones of Israel on the vest. They don't know exactly how it worked, but it was used, the ephod, for talking to God and getting answers from the Lord. Urim and Thummim means lights and perfections. And so they think maybe somehow the stones lit up. I and mean, there's different opinions on it, and we can't know. There's no way we can know because we've never seen it work. But he comes down with this ephod, and that's, that's what, he's got, what he has here, because they want to inquire more of the Lord. But it tells us, verse 7, when it was told Saul that David had come to Teilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand. For he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. Who told Saul? How did he find out? Saul summoned, verse 8, all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David, who just delivered a section of Israel from the enemy of Israel, Saul still wants to go down and kill him. It's amazing what bitterness will do. Now, verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah and destroy the city on my account. Now, will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard, Oh, Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. And then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. What? David just saved their lives and they're ready to turn him back over to Saul So that he will lose his life Betrayal Verse 13 David and his men About 600 arose And departed from Teel And they went wherever they could go In other words They split In all direction You know They just took off Not together Not organized They just went running for their lives Went wherever they could go And it was told Saul That David had escaped from Keilah, He gave up the pursuit So now, though David had delivered the people of Keilah, now David deals with the pain of betrayal. To be applauded and cheered one moment, to be welcomed with open arms one moment, and turned against the next, is a dark reality in the human condition. And I'll give you the best example I can find on this. It was one week between the shouting of the words, Hosanna and crucify. How long did it take the people in Jerusalem to turn against Jesus? I mean, that's, that's a stunning thought that these same people who were laying down palm fronds and shouting his praises and singing Hosanna, that many of these same people were the ones standing there looking up at the cross going, What a shame. What a terrible thing. He must not have been who he said he was. Hosanna! Crucify! Betrayal. That the very men who stood with Jesus Like Peter said I will go to the death for you When Jesus' life was in danger Peter hot footed it out of there That the same Peter who had the strength To pull out a sword in the garden of Gethsemane And lop off the ear of the high priest's servant This same Peter When confronted by a little girl by the fire A few hours later Says I don't know who he is I have no idea who you're talking about Betrayal And it's just a part of of life as as we know it. Jesus said this to his followers in John 16 verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. He's just gone through this Thursday night discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, and he shared a lot of things, and it's difficult for the apostles to hear. They don't understand. He's talking in negative terms that they haven't heard before, and they're they're frightened, and they're looking at him and saying, What's going on, Jesus? This isn't good. He said, I told you all this so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. (laughs) Outcasts from the synagogue. I just just heard from my mother-in-law, a friend of hers, uh, and knows a couple that, that, that are going to a church or have been going to a church and the husband after 30 years of giving their lives to this particular church 30 years of service 30 years of being there every Sunday every Wednesday every time the doors were open 30 years of serving on church boards and helping out with activities and different things going on after 30 years they discover that the pastor of the church is a mason a full-fledged mason and so the husband had a big problem with this and confronted the pastor about it and the pastor kicked them out of the church. Now I share that with you because when Jesus says they will make you outcast from the synagogue, I want you to stop and think about what if you showed up at the door of the bridge on, on a Sunday morning and you were stopped and we said, No, I'm sorry. You're not welcome here anymore. You can't come in here. I mean, this, this is the place that you've chosen to call home. And we've only been here four years. What if you were involved with a church body where your friends and your family and all your associations and relations were there with the church and you had, you had celebrations together and birthdays together and holidays together and that Christmas Eve service that you, everybody hates to work so hard on but everybody does and you do all this stuff together and then suddenly you're told you're out, you're on your own. Sorry, you're not welcome here. That's what the apostles would face. You are no longer welcome in this place That you went all your lives. Jesus says, be ready for that. It's coming. He says, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think he is offering service to God. What does that say? It says, you guys are going to be killed. And as they're killing you, they're going to think they're doing the right thing. He says these things they will do Because they have not known the Father or me But these things I have spoken to you So that when their hour comes You may remember that I told you of them These things I did not say to you At the, at the beginning Because I was with you I'm telling you now Because I'm about to be gone Jesus says But betrayal coming guys and it is a fact of life that if you give your life to me, you're going to be betrayed and handed over, kicked out of the synagogues, and ultimately you're going to die for your faith. Jesus forewarns and prepares his apostles and us, if we'll listen, the giving of yourself will not necessarily gain you accolades or major awards or even security on this side of heaven. That it is wise to understand that if you're going to give your life completely and fully to the Lord, that you will be criticized for it, that you will be challenged for it, that you may be hurt for it, that for all of your wonderful service and good works, you may not receive any applause for it. And understanding that, are you still willing to take the next step with the Lord? Because what we see typically among the men and women of scripture is not great applause but we see betrayal you might say well if that's the way it is why should we do what we do why should we love people at all if we're going to just get slapped around isn't it wise let's just be shrewd and cynical let's hole up in the barn and let's keep to ourselves and if someone's betraying us in this you know these four walls we kick them out that's how we can do things three reasons Three reasons why we continue to serve the Lord and live for the Lord in spite of betrayal in the world. Number one, it makes us presently like our Lord. It makes us presently like Jesus who heard them shout Hosanna and equally heard them shout crucify. Jesus said in Matthew 10.24, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Now listen to the context of this. Jesus says if they had called the head of the house if they have called me the head of the house Beelzebul how much more will they malign the members of his household if they're going on my case and you're my followers what do you think is going to happen but the reality is gang that if we are persecuted for faith if we are betrayed if people do turn against us because of our belief in Jesus Christ it makes us more like him and that's a good thing that's a good thing it also number two secures our future in the Lord listen to this verse Matthew 5.11 Jesus says blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad listen for your reward in heaven is great so you are going to have a hard time here and it's not going to be easy here and there are going to be challenges and people coming against you and betrayals and all of that here but your reward in heaven is going to be sweet and sometimes just looking ahead to that reward is enough I haven't experienced it yet but I know it's coming and now I'm going to stick to this because I know it's coming and I know I'm going to be in that place with the Lord handling betrayal with a godly attitude a Jesus like attitude it makes us presently like our Lord it secures our future in the Lord and number three and possibly more importantly for all of us it recalls our past before the Lord See, here's the truth. Here's the reality, the irony, and the sad truth of betrayal. The betrayed have themselves also been the betrayer. And there's not a one of us who has been betrayed or hurt by another person who have not betrayed and hurt someone else in our lives. And it's a reminder. When we go, oh, I can't believe that person was so mean to me. There's someone else who says, oh, I can't believe Rick was such a jerk to me. And it reminds me of my past experience before the Lord remember the last chapter in David's life he's betrayed now by the people of Keilah but what happened in Nob in essence he betrayed the priest of Nob he didn't tell him what was going on he lied about it he misrepresented the truth instead of coming clean with the priest and going look I am on the run here I didn't do anything but my life is in danger and if you help me you may be in danger too but he didn't even give the priest the opportunity he lies to him The priest helps him and ends up dead because of it. All the priests, you remember the story, 85 priests and all the people, men, women, and children, and infants of Nob were killed because David, in essence, betrayed them to Saul. And I wonder if that was on David's mind at this point. As he realizes these people who he just fought for and rescued are going to give him up to Saul, he he must be thinking, wow, that's what I did to the people of Nob. It's interesting because we don't see David getting upset about this. Later on, in back in chapter 25, you're going to see David get upset about something that's a much smaller issue than this. But at this point, I really wonder if it's fresh on his mind that this high priest and Nob generously gave David what he had to give and what he got for it was killed. And David remembers this. And we need to recall that. When we're betrayed by someone, when a friend a family member someone turns against you maybe someone at work who you thought you could trust turned against you and cost you a position when those things happen remember Romans 3.23 we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest or 1 Corinthians 6.11 that we read last week where Paul gives a list of all kinds of horrendous sinners and it says such were some of you You can probably find yourself in the list. But he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, we've been saved from our past to walk presently with the Lord in the security, future-wise, with the Lord. Past, present, and future. It's the Lord who navigates David through this betrayal. And another one that's coming in just a few verses. And how does God do it? How does He get David through it? By being ever present. Verse 14 says, David stayed in the wilderness, in the strongholds, and remained in the hill country, in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. But God... I've got that highlighted and circled right here. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Scripture is full of those. However... God does not allow this. But God doesn't allow this to happen. Yet God is there. So David is not alone, though he's traveling in the wilderness. Father is present. And it tells us, interesting, that he's in the wilderness of Ziph. If you're having to keep track, if you're taking notes, and you're tracking any of this stuff, we said so far that David devotes himself to prayer. That was number one. Number two is he discerns, discerns with patience. Number three, he delivers the people of Keilah number four he deals David deals with the pain of betrayal and now we get to the fifth one these are coming real fast tonight David is detoured through a place of purification David is detoured through a place of purification this wilderness of Ziph this place Ziph literally means stronghold and or and I found this interesting another translation of the word Ziph is refinery David is now in the refinery David is now in the wilderness, but it is in this place where he is being refined. It's believed that this wilderness of Ziph contained minerals throughout the hills. In fact, there in the hills of Ziph was actually a place where such minerals were extracted by the people and were refined. There was a refinery in the place, which is why it was called Ziph in the first place. Ziph, refinery. And there was a Hebrew refinery there refining the minerals out of the ground. And this is exactly what David is going through, what we sang about refiner's fire refinement purification preparation of the godliest kind now listen to this and consider this whole idea of being refined Proverbs 17 verse 3 tells us the refining pot for silver and the furnace for gold but the Lord tests hearts the refining pot for silver and the furnace for gold but the Lord tests hearts it doesn't say he tempts hearts The Bible is very clear about that. Let no one say when he's tempted that he's tempted by God. For God does not tempt anyone, but he does test. We've talked about this before. J. Vernon McGee gives a great example of testing. He said when he was a young boy that there was a railroad trestle that was near his house in in Texas. And one day the the railroad company came along and they busted it down because it was in bad shape. And they built a new one. And it was months and months before the new one was finished. And when it was, they brought in a train and they began to run it across the trestle. And they'd back it up across the trestle. And they were doing this for two or three days. And finally the people of the town were asking, what are you doing? They're testing it to make sure it's strong. They're not testing it to destroy it. They're not testing it to break the new trestle that's been built. They're testing it to be sure of its strength. To prove its strength, not only for the railroad company, but also for the people nearby that they would know they could have trust in this trestle. And so the Lord tests us, not to tempt us, not to make us fall, but to strengthen us, to deepen our faith, to show us ourselves what He has prepared us to handle. It's part of the refining process. We sing, purify my heart. And you know what, the lights dim and the soft guitar playing... It's so easy to sing those words. It's a pretty melody too. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold. As purest silver. Oh, it sounds so sweet. Until you walk in and you watch gold or silver being refined. And there's nothing pretty about it. It's hot. For gold to be refined, they heat it up. And they continue to heat it up and boil it to the point where it is so, so hot that it turns into actual liquid. And a smelter... A goldsmith will literally continue to burn and burn and burn away the gold until there are no impurities that are visible. Until, and this is the old-fashioned way to do it, until the smelter could look into the gold and see nothing but the reflection of his face. That's when he knew the gold was pure. And so when we say, Father, purify my heart. Refine me. This is what we're asking for. We're asking for him to turn up the heat. So praying, Father... Do whatever it takes to get the impurities out of my life. And the Lord would say to you and the Lord would say to me, Well, do you understand that if you want to be refined, you're going to go into the furnace? Do you understand that if you truly want to be holy, want to be set apart, that you can expect things like betrayal? Because betrayal may be a bad thing and it may even be an act of Satan himself, but I'm going to use it to make you more holy, to make you more usable. In my economy. Indeed the scriptures say and God says this specifically to Israel. Isaiah 48 verse 10. Behold I have refined you but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That's a frightening verse. And that raises for me a picture of the Holocaust in the ovens of Hitler. The furnace of affliction. That's where God refined Israel. Paul picks it up in 1 Timothy 3.12 and says, Indeed, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Well, I don't know if this is a very good sales pitch for the whole Christian thing. Well, that's okay. We're not selling anything tonight. We're just talking truth. And refinement and purification is not an easy process. It's a life process. And it's what our whole entire lives are about. But thankfully... Thankfully God doesn't send us into the furnace alone Like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego There's a fourth man walking around the furnace There's a fourth one who's in there Who is helping us through the refinement process And it's Jesus who is always present And he's present with David As he's going through this refinement God's protecting him He's providing for him In fact now in verse 15 it says David became aware That Saul had come out to seek his life While David was in the wilderness of Ziph and Horesh And Jonathan David's best friend Jonathan Saul's son arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God thus he said to him do not be afraid because the hand of Saul my father will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you and Saul my father knows that also and so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord again these two best friends making a covenant and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went back to his house I love the way this this reads in fact I like the King James a little bit better verse 16 says that that Jonathan encouraged him in God the King James says literally he strengthened his hand in the Lord this is what a best friend this is what a spiritual friend will do for you will strengthen your hand in the Lord David's in the wilderness and he's afraid and he's running and he's struggling and he is being refined but in the middle of this refinement process I believe the Lord taps Jonathan on the back and says go David needs you. Go encourage him. Go be there for him. And that's exactly what Jonathan does. He he encourages, he strengthens his hand in God. In fact, it's interesting, Jonathan, David's best friend, is similar in his words here to John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Jonathan says, Jonathan, who would be heir to the throne... He says, don't be afraid, the hand of Saul my father will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. In other words, I will serve under you. You're going to be my king. And I will support you and I will strengthen you. John chapter 3 verse 26 tells us that John's disciples came to him and and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. And we're losing ground here, John. Everybody's going to Jesus for baptism now. We're going to 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 have to close down our, our little revival here. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full... And John says these great words: He must increase, but I must decrease. What's the heart of John? David, you're going to increase. David, you're going to increase. I'm going to decrease. I, I don't. I'm not going to be the king. It will be you. I promise you, it will be you. And I support that. And I stand beside you. We all need Jonathan in our lives, don't we? It's so good to have someone who comes alongside us and strengthens our hands in the Lord. Now, sadly, this will be the last time that David and Jonathan have any contact. Beautifully, the last time they talk, what Jonathan does is strengthen David's hand in the Lord. Here we are, amazingly, though they won't have contact again, 3,000 years later, and people are still talking about David and Jonathan. We're still tonight considering... The act, the unselfish act of this man, Jonathan, in loving his friend and strengthening his hand in the Lord. And David is encouraged and he's going to need it because betrayal is coming all over again. Verse 19, then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, and they said, Is not is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horesh and on the hill of Ahilah, which is in the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. So now the people of Ziph, like the people of Keilah, are also betraying David. And I paused and I thought about this today. It's one thing to look back in history and consider the life of a man like David. It's another thing to see what people thought of him right then. A contemporary view of David. Like the contemporary view of President Bush. What do people think of him right now? What's often spoken about our our current president is, well, we'll let history decide. And I wonder, 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, Lord willing, if we look back, what people will say of the Bush presidency, or the Clinton presidency, or on and on down the line we go. Corey and I went last, I think it was last Sunday? No, a week ago, last Sunday, uh, over to Anacortes And we saw a play there I do you heard about it 43 plays for 43 presidents It was written by a Pretty Pretty left leaning um, Theater group in Chicago 43 And they were all Like 30 second to minute long plays Of every single president Going 43 Not one was positive I was just sitting there going Even Lincoln Lincoln was portrayed in a negative light. Every single one was negative, 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 negative. And I, I was sitting there going, "Well, that's not even accurate to history. That's not even what the history." I don't care Democrat or Republican. When people look back at Lincoln, mostly have a pretty good thing to say about him. When you look back at what some of these men did and what they suffered for this country, you know, I'm sitting in this place going, "It's ridiculous this rewrite of history." But it is interesting to think about David and look back and, and think, "Well, I would assume, wouldn't you? David's the good guy. He killed Goliath." He killed his ten thousands of Philistines. He's the popular man in Israel, and yet everywhere he goes, people are betraying him. The Israelites are giving him up to Saul. And now the Ziphites are doing the same thing. Come on down, Saul, and get him, and we'll help, we'll help you. We'll help surround his men and, and hand him over to you. And Saul, verse 21, Saul does not have the Holy Spirit. Saul is a bitter, raging lunatic. And listen to his, his verbiage. May you be blessed of the Lord you know this, this holy sounding pretentiously pious be blessed of the Lord for you have had compassion on me it's total pretense I hate that it's all talk he talks the talk and you know the phrase he doesn't walk the walk and that's Saul's problem it's all coming out of his mouth but it has nothing to do with his life there's no spiritual integrity it's just spiritual verbiage and I say this I point this out because sometimes I think we need to pause and be careful with spiritual lingo now it doesn't mean that we water everything down we say it it doesn't mean that we stop using words like praise the Lord praises or, or, or hey be blessed have a blessed day or anything like that that's not what I'm saying but when we start to puff up with this biblical sounding language that is not the way we normally speak there's some danger in that it's seen as hypocrisy in the world. When we start to be what we're not, really. See, I believe that, that walking in Jesus makes you more real than you already are. It makes you more like Him, but not this religious type person. Which is why we keep coming back to this verse, James one twenty two: Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves... Let your faith be seen in your consistency, in your commitment, in your integrity, in your faithfulness. Let your faith be obvious in the way that you act, in the way you live your life. Not just in the verbiage that you choose to use. I was thinking about, I just heard this the other day, I'll share this with you. About just kind of the hypocrisy, the international Red Cross. The Red Cross. I mean, just the name is Christian, right? Red Cross. Where did it come from in the first place? It's a Christian, originally, organization to help out in wartime and in struggle and in difficulty. And I didn't know this until just literally yesterday that the International Red Cross, you know the symbol, the big red cross that we see on the sides of ambulances or, or in offices that are, that are helping out. There's, there's a great hypocrisy here. Israel has been rejected from membership in the Red Cross. Why? Because they didn't want to put red crosses on the side of their ambulances. They wanted to put blue stars of David. They applied to be as a nation, accepted into the International Red Cross, so we instead put a, a blue star of David as our symbol, but doing the same thing that the Red Cross does and they were rejected from membership here's the hypocrisy 20 Arab nations are members in good standing and they sport on the side of their vehicles a red crescent moon and that's okay the world looks like that looks at that kind of thing and we look and we go well that's, that's hypocrisy it's hypocritical yeah it's spiritual verbiage with no spiritual integrity well, going on, that's Saul. That's that's the example we see in him. He says in verse twenty two, Go now, make more sure, and investigate, and see his place where his haunt is. And he who has seen him there, for I am told he's very cunning. Watch it, watch it, David's a slick guy. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself, and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. This guy is driven. Verse 24, they arose and they went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. And when Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Ma'an. It tells us Saul went to one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, And David was hurrying to get away from Saul For Saul and his men were surrounding David And his men to seize them So what's happening here in the topography of the land is interesting David's on one side of the mountain Saul's on the other side But this particular mountain had kind of an indentation on it And scholars believe that's where David was And on that side of the mountain it, It indents and there's a valley that kind of runs down David is there back to the mountain And Saul's men are coming around either side And he's literally pinned in this is as close to the end as David gets as Saul's men press in around him he's trapped he's almost cut off here his men David they're going to be seized but at the last minute there is a great escape verse 27 but a messenger came to Saul saying hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land so Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines therefore they called that place the rock of escape this is fascinating to me the enemy is attacking but God is delivering Saul has to leave and go fight the Philistines the enemy of Israel and I am absolutely convinced God sent the Philistines at just the right time to save David but wait the Philistines are enemies of Israel God's people therefore enemies of God yes because God will use the enemy to save his people because the enemy's not that bright he's like a roaring lion prowling around but he's not that bright I think we give Satan far too much credit, by the way. I think i said that before. I think I need to say it again. We give him far too much credit. We are far too frightened of the designs of the enemy when we stand covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Rather than run afraid, we need to recognize that God is sufficient to deliver every one of us from any attempt or attack of the enemy. And there are times when God uses the enemy... To his own advantage Because God is so great And so wise And of course we see David had nowhere to run But he had to run To the rock of escape The rock of escape This is where God delivers David By the rock of escape Great phrase Obvious phrase I think if you're thinking Biblically If you're thinking about What we've seen over and over The rock of our salvation Jesus Christ Is our rock of escape this rock of salvation portrayed in Scripture, we see again and again. And here David is again saved at a rock. The Lord delivers him by the rock. And I was thinking about this whole idea of the rock of escape. And there are those who would say that rapture theology, the idea that the church is going to be pulled out before the tribulation, which I've told about, we've talked about, we've taught on in Revelation, we studied it, I believe that fully. As amazing and, and almost almost unbelievable as it is. It's what the Bible says is going to happen. He's going to pull us out. But there are those who hear that and they say, well, the rapture, that's just theological escapism, isn't it? Aren't you just trying to be escapist? You know, Aren't you willing to stay and fight the good fight through the tribulation? <laughs> Honestly, no. <laughs> I mean, there, are, there are those people who think, oh, we gotta, we got to arm ourselves and get ready to fight the battle. Let God fight the battle. I would much rather be on the honeymoon than in the battle. Theological escapism? Absolutely it is. Because Jesus said in Luke 21, 36, Keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, to escape all these things. Walk with me, Jesus says. Be strong in me. Trust that I am the rock of your salvation. And I'm going to help you escape. You are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5 Somewhere in there tells us. You're not destined for that. I believe it's 510, but you you can check that out. By the way, Israel has a rock of escape. Israel has a rock of escape as well. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, and talking about this midpoint in the tribulation when things are all, all hell is breaking loose. And the Israelites, the Israelis, they finally at this point realize who Antichrist is. Someone they've signed a covenant with, the Bible tells us, Daniel chapter 9. And they're now in this place where they realize this world leader is betraying them. And Revelation chapter 12 verse 6 says, The woman who is Israel fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days, which is exactly three and a half years. It's the last half of the seven year tribulation. We asked the question when we studied this in the Revelation series. Where is it exactly that Israel will hide? Where is this place in the wilderness? Quickly turn over to Isaiah chapter 16. If you study through Revelation with us, this will just shore up what you already knew. If you haven't studied it, check this out. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1. And we're thinking about, we're looking at Israel's rock of escape. As David has his rock of escape, as we have our rock of escape in Jesus Christ, Israel has a rock of escape as well. Isaiah 16, verse one, which says, and your, your Bibles may say this is a heading; it's a prophecy of Moab's destruction. But if you listen for a moment, it says, the "Send tribute, send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah, By way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Selah. What is Selah? The Hebrew word Selah means rock. The Greek word, the Greek equivalent of this Hebrew word Selah, rock, is Petra. So the people of Israel have a a Petra of escape. They have a rock of escape. And so verse 2 continues on It says, Then like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings... The daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. Give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts and do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. For the extortioner has come to an end, destruction has ceased, oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. And a throne will even be established in loving kindness, and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness to the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. And this whole section in Isaiah 16, the indication is here, hide my people. The outcasts of Moab. Well, who were the outcast of Moab? We're drawing back to Ruth, the Moabitess. And the people of Israel, Ruth's family, were in Moab and then out. The outcast of Moab is Israel. And hide them, the Bible says, Isaiah 16. Hide them, give them a hiding place, do not betray the fugitive. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. Moab is today Jordan. Jordan today houses an ancient city... Carved out of the rock by a group of people Known as the Nabataeans Carved out of this mountainous rock in the city is Selah Or you know it better is Petra Many of you have already seen Petra If you watched Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade That big rock temple thing they go into It's Petra And it actually exists And was actually carved out by the hand of men Petra is also called the Rose Red City We're planning in the next Israel trip To go to Petra It's a little expensive, so I'm trying to work that out and figure out how much can we really say, okay, this is what we're going to spend, you know. Is $10,000 per person too much? Maybe we should back it off of that. I'm kidding, it's not that much. But we're trying to decide if we can afford it, but I'm dying to go to Petra and to see this place. Petra is carved out of red sandstone, and they say that it yields 30 to 40 different shades of pinks and oranges and reds, especially as the sun hits it in the morning. They say it's dazzling. And Petra has one entrance that is 12 feet wide with rock walls that range in height on either side of it from 200 to 1,000 feet. It is an almost, it's a defensible city, it's unoffensible. You you can't get in, there's only that 12 foot entrance and then overhead, You, you can't penetrate the city of Petra. It's a perfect hiding place in the wilderness. It is a stronghold. And Petra may very well be And I'm not going to say absolutely I can say absolutely God is going to provide a rock of escape He is going to provide a place in the wilderness for His people Will it be Petra? Well it sure does fit scripture But I don't know absolutely But during the tribulation God is going to provide for His people Israel and Petra very well could provide shelter and refuge for hundreds of thousands of people across that period of three and a half years so convinced the Bible scholar W.E.B. Blackstone so convinced he was that, that Petra is the place he had tens of thousands of Hebrew New Testaments placed in stone jars and buried all around in Petra just for some reading material during that three and a half years so that's actually there it's interesting Have you been betrayed? Then run to the rock of escape. Have you been hurt? Then hide in the cleft of the rock who is Jesus Christ. And David wrote in Psalm 18 verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. David understood strongholds he didn't just, this wasn't poetic for David this was life and as he was saved by the rock of escape as Saul returned to go battle the Philistines David writes God is my rock just as I was able to, to, to hide in this rock and, and, and be saved God is my rock what's beautiful about studying the life of David is the more we know about David the more we understand the Psalms they are real life engagements for David He's drawing poetically, yes, but it's powerful because it's attached to life itself. Now, as we finish up, there is one last rock I'm going to mention to you. Verse 29, David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of En Gedi. En Gedi. It's one of my favorite spots on the Israel tour. And whether or not we do Petra is up for for question right now, but we will go to En Gedi. It's a beautiful place. It's interesting because it's down toward the Dead Sea. So it's in a very hot desert-like place. But as you come up to En Gedi, you notice, first of all, that there's greenery everywhere. Up into these mountain clefts. And there are caves all up up this mountainous way that, that ultimately leads up to Jerusalem. And water comes down there year-round. Even in the droughts, there's water in En Gedi. Engedi stands for, or, or means in the Hebrew, spring of the gazelle. And there are little gazelles, goats of some kind. They're, they're Hebrew goats, so I don't really understand what they're saying when they make their little noises. But they're jumping around all over the place at Engedi. And there are waterfalls and. It's a beautiful place. It's it's peaceful. That's a place where we stopped And it was funny on on our last tour. It it was getting really intense. There's a lot of teaching, and it is when you go to Israel and if you come with me, it's it's intense. Okay, it's not. You're not going to have hours just to lounge, dipping your feet in the you know in the Sea of Galilee and just pondering life. We're on the move like this. And when I told that group, and tell we'll tell future groups you go and you get it poured in it's like opening your mouth to a fire hose of input you know and then you spend the next two or three years of your life dipping your feet in the Sea of Galilee in remembrance every time the Bible is open it's awesome the way that works but in Getty, we got there on, on the last trip and we sat down and a few of the people had come to me and said "So we have a few minutes and I'm looking at my watch going okay we gotta be coming into Jerusalem at sundown because you want to hit the Temple Mountain just right. So, yeah, I think we have a few minutes. And everybody kind of spread out in this grassy knoll there that, that looks down. There's a little fence. And you look over and you're looking right up literally into En this place where David hid. And it's stunning to think he, these are the these are the caves he was in. And as you look up there and you think about him, it, it's it's a quiet place. And I mentioned En to say this. What happens there... Is incredibly personal for David, and it's incredibly powerful. And it goes to the very the very heart of a man after God's own heart. What we see displayed through David at Engedi is more the heart of God than any other moment of his entire life, because it's there at Engedi when David has the opportunity to kill Saul, but he chooses instead to forgive and we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning let's pray Father I pray that you will prepare our hearts for Engedi. I pray you will prepare our minds and our spirits Lord to hear of this place and to see David and Saul interacting there and to learn from him Lord and to internalize in our own lives and spirits especially when we've gone through betrayal Father and hurt and upset by other people, sometimes, Lord, even other believers, that like David, we would stand in a place like in Getty, and we would speak the word forgive. Forgive. Father, teach us how to forgive our debts. Lord Jesus, teach us to speak your words as you spoke from the cross. Forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And in this process, Lord, we do pray that you will keep refining us and purifying us to the benefit of the kingdom and to your will in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I encourage you to look forward. Um, In fact, if you have a few minutes between now and Sunday, if you can squeak out a little bit of time, just read 1 Samuel 24. Watch what David does and we'll come back to it and talk about it on Sunday. Have a great night. Update, Les, how is Larry? Uh, Larry is in a lot better shape than what I thought they would find First of all, he was not in the hospital. And I think